friends. We're so glad you joined us at the Grace Gathered podcast. If you found your way here, know that you are hearing from two women who have prayed over you. Our prayer is that together we can encounter God and His Word intentionally and saturate our minds with Jesus in a world that is determined to fix our eyes on anything but Him. We hope you gather much encouragement to grow on and to share, and that you leave each episode knowing and loving Jesus just a little bit more. So grab a cup of coffee and come join our conversation. Let's get started. Hey friends, this episode we have for you today is the culmination of our season, and we are going to be looking at how Psalm 23 shows us what flourishing really looks like. It's also a rare solo episode today, just Stephanie, no Libby. So I'd love to start out a little differently today and say a prayer over the episode together. Normally, Libby and I pray together before we begin, and when we are sharing space, we also remind each other of things, correct each other, point out silly things we've said. So I would love to partner with all of you today in prayer in the absence of praying with Libby. Lord, please help my spoken words today to hold only truth and help each of us as we dive into such a familiar psalm to be wary of assuming that we have no more to glean from it than has already been learned. Help us each to leave this episode having learned something new about you and something new about who we are in you. Thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's dive right in. I'm going to go verse by verse, but before you start sweating or skip the episode, I will say that it's only six verses, and each one holds so much. I'm going to share notes on what I've had the privilege of learning and studying through the process of preparing for this episode. Um, For many of us, it's a very familiar psalm. We love to apply verses of this to different areas of our life, so I'm going to start by saying something a little harsh. And that is that this psalm, these words, are conditional. Meaning the comforting, life-giving words apply to us only if we can say that we follow Jesus as our shepherd. These words are not written for those of us who fancy ourselves self-sufficient, which includes me a lot of the time. But all of us are seeking, and none of us, not a single one, follows him perfectly. That's why we're in need of a shepherd in the first place. And the word shepherd, that's a drop of grace right there. Not a distant title like king, which still applies, or savior, which definitely applies, but shepherd. It's an intimate, close relation. Someone who lives with, walks with, and even sleeps with his flock. This tells us that Jesus stays close to us. The verse continues, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This is both a fact and a commitment. Something I learned from my discipleship group this past year is to pay special attention to the verbs in the Bible. I shall not want. The fact is that our shepherd, when we follow him, takes care of all of our needs. But one of life's seemingly unfair caveats is that some seem to receive so much more than others. So the commitment part of this for us as his flock is to state that I shall not want more than what God has for me. It says, I trust him, he is so good to me, and I trust his provision. 
The next verse says that he makes us lie down in green pastures. If you have not listened already to the episodes on rest and hurry, I encourage you to go back and take a listen. These explore further why he has to make us lie down sometimes. We will rest either by obedience or by collapsing from exhaustion. If we are closely following our shepherd, perhaps we'll all get a little better at resting before that point. And here's another thing I hadn't thought of on my own, living in green North Carolina. One pastor I heard speak on this first pointed out that where they lived in these Bible times was a desert. One would have to know where to find the green pastures and know that there wasn't just a nice park couple miles up the highway with a creek and a nice field. I relate this to times in my life when Jesus knew where to help me find rest, even when I was so overwhelmed, I didn't know which way was up or what day of the week it was. He gently guides me to green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters, as the end of verse 2 says. In this time of rest, he doesn't lead me beside tempests and floods, but still waters of refreshment and restoration. Verse 3 begins by saying, he restores my soul. Now, the act of restoration, of course, first assumes that a point of departure has come. We've all walked away from the perfect plan God laid before us. We've all erred. And the result has been, or will be, chaos, burnout, noise, and trouble. We all need to turn away from the ways we've been going and back to the path that he is on. Repentance must come before restoration. Verse 3 says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now the human in us, or maybe just me, (laughs) at this point wants to say, Are those the paths that go along the beach route? Surely they are the beautiful ones. Because to be completely broken and honest and human, for your namesake, is often not my first priority. My first priority is typically my personal comfort. But here's the thing. If we're following Jesus closely enough to reflect him, learn his ways, and be transformed more into his likeness daily, then suddenly, for his namesake, becomes our number one goal, passion, and purpose. And what greater way to show love than to help someone find and fulfill their greatest goal, passion, and purpose in life. In this way, Jesus is showing us love by leading us on paths that glorify his name. I wish I didn't have to point this out, but those beach paths also were never ever promised. It is so easy and so worldly of us to think that hard times mean that we must have surely done something wrong or were on the wrong path. That God would never lead us on a path to a valley of deep darkness, unless as some form of punishment. Here we get to verse 4. And in the transition from the green pastures and still waters to the valley of the shadow of death, we also transition from David, the author of the psalm, using the word he when referring to his shepherd, to using the word you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The evil in this world is real, but this verse is one of many in the Bible that reminds us that our response to evil should be to face it, not to fear it. 
Until he returns again, it isn't going anywhere. But our shepherd prepares us to face it when we follow him. The fact is that sometimes those paths of righteousness take us right through hard times, right through valleys of deep darkness and evil. Now, if any of us have a valley that comes to mind, past or present, that we've been thinking of as a punishment, I want to challenge each of us right now to take that thought captive, take our shepherd's hand, and walk with him through it instead of hunkering down and just praying for it to be over. Notice here that the valley in the psalm is not a place of dwelling, but a place of traversing, of passing through. We don't live or stay there forever, but we pass through it. The Bible is full of beautiful truths, but also full of hard ones. And one unfortunate one is that because of the fall, we may spend our whole lives on earth in the valley. But the good news is that because of Jesus' sacrifice, we will not spend eternity there. We will cross over to the other side of the valley to green pastures again even if not until his kingdom comes. But while we are there, for whatever duration, he is with us. At the end of verse 4, we find a physical reminder that he is always with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, it says. Through studying, I learned that these are either two tools or two parts of one tool, but either way, they serve two purposes. The tool is used to protect the flock, both from external threats like a prowling lion, and from themselves. The sheep, like us, need guidance, sometimes to find green pastures and sometimes to keep from falling off the side of a cliff in the dark. If you've ever looked back in hindsight and thought, oh my gosh, God saved me from something big, then you and I have some things in common. I cringe to think that some of those times were when I was far from him, not walking closely at all, unsafe as I could be. A sovereign God uses all of his tools to keep us within his will, and a loving shepherd uses correction to keep us safe. Let us pray that we heed this instead of resenting it. Verse 5 goes on to say, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It is so easy for us to forget all that God has done for us when we are surrounded on all sides by trouble and turmoil. This verse tells us that God not only protects us and provides for us, but puts care and forethought into the ways that he does this. This isn't a PB&J on the run from some enemies out to snare us. It's a feast right in the middle of hard circumstances. We can rest easy and even enjoy. As I was reading from a Bible plan the other day, I came across another psalm that contrasted so heavily with what I'm studying in Psalm 23 that I thought, this is what happens when we don't follow the shepherd. In Psalm 69, verse 22, we find David saying, Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. So let us not be lulled into complacency and false security when times seem good, calm, and safe. But also, let us not forget that even in times of trouble, we can be so full of joy that it overflows from us to those around us. I can scarcely think of another way to be a better witness for God than this, the overflow of joy in the midst of trouble. 
In contrast to David's writing the words, You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. He writes in the contrasting psalm, Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. These vivid words, overflow and overtake, remind me of a prayer that I pray for myself and my family often, and that is that we will be overwhelmed by God and nothing else. The closing verse of the psalm reads as follows, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This begs the question, what follows me right now? I have exhaustion as a nasty tailgater and perfectionism and worry always tapping on my shoulder, trying to get me to turn my attention to them. What is amazing is that David may well have written this psalm while in a dark valley, but whether it was during one of his more stable happy years or perhaps one where he was even being hunted down, he said that goodness and mercy followed him. And he spoke of days present and days to come with hopeful, faithful expectation. One thing I love about this psalm is that it is applicable every single day. And the conditions on which it rests are not external, but internal. No matter where we are in life today, 10 years ago, 20 years from now, if Jesus is our shepherd, we can indeed know what it is to flourish. Thank you.